0: Welcome to this week's edition of From the MLJ Archive, a weekly radio program featuring the Bible teaching ministry of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We are currently listening to The Doctor's famous series from the Book of Romans, which he delivered to crowds on Friday nights from 1955 until 1968. But what you are about to hear is just as contemporary as when he preached it. And so let us now open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to The Doctor.
1: that we may be reminded together of the point at which we have arrived in our study of the ninth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. Let me read to you from verse 25 to verse 29. As he saith also in Ozzie, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved, And it shall come to pass, that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. Because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. Now then, we are dealing with this section in this ninth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. In which, as we saw last Friday night, the apostle is adducing evidence from the Old Testament to support and to prove and substantiate the argument which he's been working out in detail from verse 6 to the end of verse 24. Now, let's remind ourselves that he has to prove the following points. First, that the vital, the only really vital element in salvation is God's sovereign choice. That's the overruling principle which we have seen uh, uh, so clearly in working through the argument, that it is God who chooses to show mercy to whom he will show mercy, and uh, To whom he chooses to show wrath, well, he shows wrath. That's the first great principle, the absolute sovereignty of God in the matter of salvation. That salvation is entirely of God. Then secondly, God's complete freedom of choice, so that he may choose Gentiles if he wills to do so. And uh, that he may reject uh, Jews, the bulk of the nation of Israel, if he so wills. Those are the things that the apostle has been telling us. And now he proceeds to show how there's nothing new about all this, that it isn't some new idea that he is conjured up, but that this is something that had been stated quite plainly in the scriptures. And that the position with which they were confronted at that very moment was something that had been prophesied in the scriptures. Now, both these things, of course, were real stumbling blocks to the Jews. The Jews couldn't accommodate themselves in their thinking to this notion that Gentiles could ever become citizens of the kingdom of God. That was one stumbling block. And the other stumbling block was that they could not accept the notion that any Jew could be rejected and that what was utterly impossible was that the bulk of the nation of the Jews should be rejected as a whole and that the Christian church which it was claimed was the form now taken by the kingdom of God uh, should consist of many more Gentiles than Jews. Now to the Jew this was something I say that was quite unthinkable. So the apostle is doing a very wise, as well as a very subtle thing, when he quotes to them the scriptures. Um, Now we've started considering this. In verses 25 and 26, as we saw last Friday, he has dealt with the question of the calling and the bringing in of the Gentiles, and he did that, you remember, by means of his quotations from the book of the prophet Hosea. Now, we've dealt with that, so we move on this evening. He now turns to deal with this second aspect of the problem. Having seen now that it had been prophesied that the Gentiles would come in, he now has to establish this other thing, the rejection of the Jews. Now, they assumed, as Jews... That all was well with them simply because they were Jews. We've seen that repeatedly in this great epistle. It's something, of course, that is so prominent also in the pages of the four Gospels. This is the supreme tragedy of all the ages. That he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Our Lord came of the stock of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah. He came to his own people, and yet it was his own people of everybody who refused him and who rejected him. Now this is the great tragedy. And the apostle, as we've seen at the beginning of the chapter, is himself almost overwhelmed by a sense of tragedy as he considers this. But nevertheless, he's got to put the truth to them. And having stated his great argument, he is now, I say, showing that the This very thing, again, like the coming in of the Gentiles, had been very plainly and clearly foretold in the writings of the prophets. Now, there is a subsidiary aspect to the tragedy of the Jews. The Jews prided themselves on having the scriptures, what the apostles called at the beginning of chapter 3, the oracles of God. They were tremendously proud of them. And they had every reason to be proud of it. The Gentiles had had no such revelation. They had no oracles. They had no teaching from God. They were without God in the world. They were in the darkness of ignorance. Their minds were darkened. But the Jews had got the scriptures, the word of God, the oracles of God. And it was their supreme boast. this. And they prided themselves in their knowledge of the Scriptures. And yet, you see, what the apostle is doing in these in very verses that we are looking at now in this very paragraph, what the apostle is really showing to them is that while they prided themselves on the Scriptures and their knowledge of the Scriptures, their whole trouble was due to the fact that they were blind to the message of the Scriptures. And that, of course, is what makes what you and I are doing tonight such a solemn and such a serious thing. We are people who claim to be interested in the scriptures. Well, my dear friend, let's watch our spirits before we go any further. Here were men, I say, who lived in a sense for the scriptures and believed they were authorities in them. And yet they were absolutely blind to the plain teaching of the scriptures. God have mercy upon us and deliver us and save us from misunderstanding the very word in which we glory together. In other words, what the apostle is doing here is the precise thing that our Lord himself did so many times with these same Jews, and particularly with the Pharisees and the scribes. Take, for instance, uh, a famous example of this very thing, which uh, we have in John 5, beginning to read at verse 39. Search the scriptures, or if you prefer the other translation, you do search the scriptures. doesn't matter which. It's either a command or, or else it's a statement of them. Search the scriptures. For in them you think that you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And you will not come unto me that you might have life. There it is. So plainly stated by our Lord himself. He says you're always talking about the scriptures. Well he says go to them. Search them. And you'll find if you but have eyes to see. That they're full of me. And yet you are rejecting me. Now, this, I say, is the supreme tragedy of all the ages. That the Jews were so blinded by their prejudices that they were unable to see their own word and its meaning. You see, they were so blind to the real truth concerning the Messiah. They'd got their carnal notion of the Messiah. So that when the true Messiah appears, they say, impossible, this is a blasphemer. Their Messiah was to be a great military personage. And when he came as a carpenter, the thing to them was ridiculous. And when he died on a tree in weakness, it was just monstrous. So the cross became a stumbling block to the Jews in spite of Isaiah 53, in spite of the Paschal Lamb, in spite of the Lamb offered morning and evening regularly in all the tabernacle and temple ceremonial and all the other scriptures. Well, there it is. Well, now then, the apostle, as I say, is uh, showing them now from the very scriptures of which they boasted so much how blind they were and how wrong they were and how inexcusable they were. This, of course, is his favorite method. You find abundantly in the book of the Acts of the Apostles that when the great apostle was dealing with Jews or speaking in a synagogue, what he always did was to base his arguments upon the scriptures. Take this one illustration out of Acts 17, where we read what he did in Thessalonica, beginning to read at the first verse. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia... They came to Thessalonica, where was the synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. That was his method. He proclaimed the message of the kingdom of God, and then he shared it out of the Scriptures proving and alleging, reasoning with them out of the scriptures. And when you're dealing with Jews, of course it is the obvious method of evangelism. You don't make general statements, you take the scriptures in which they say they believe, and you show them Christ in the scriptures and every other aspect of the truth. Well now here, the apostle in particular is showing them this aspect of the truth that the scriptures, the prophets, have prophesied the rejection and the punishment of the Jews, speaking generally of them as a nation. Now then, this is what he does. In uh, verses uh, 27 and 28, he quotes Isaiah 10, verses 22 and 23. Now look at this uh, verse statement in verse twenty-seven. It's a very interesting one. You notice how the apostle puts it. Isaiah also, he says, crieth concerning Israel. Yeah, most interesting word that word crieth. Uh, he doesn't just say Isaiah says or Isaiah prophesies concerning Israel. No, what he says is Isaiah crieth or cries. What's the meaning of the word? Well, we should be in no difficulty about the meaning of the word. We've already had exactly the same word in the 15th verse of the 8th chapter, where we read, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, and when we were dealing with that, we were at great pains to bring out the full meaning of the word cry, Abba, Father. I said then that it's a word that has a very deep and pro- profound meaning. What it means is this, that we don't just say Abba, Father. The Christian, the man who is led by the Spirit of God, and the one who has received, not the spirit of bondage, but this other spirit, the spirit of adoption, is one who doesn't uh, just say, God is my father. He doesn't just address God quietly as father. He cries about father. And we then said what we've got to say again tonight that the meaning of the word is this. It is an impassioned utterance. It is an inarticulate cry. It's a loud cry expressing deep emotion. Indeed, uh, some of the authorities tell us that the ultimate origin of this word is it's like the screeching of a bird under very great stress so you see it's a very interesting and a very important word we interpreted it like this in uh, chapter 8 verse 15 that when a man really has got the spirit of adoption he knows that God is his father and dwelling up out of the depths of his being comes this cry Abba Father deep emotion not just some quiet uh, polite uh, addressing God as father it's like a little child who hasn't seen his father for a long time the father appears and the child rushes shouting in its glee and in its happiness at seeing the father that's the word well now he says here that Isaiah crieth concerning Israel why does he use this word you think well it's most appropriate isn't it What he's telling us is this, that when Isaiah uttered that prophecy, he did so with a sense of shock, with a sense of amazement. He was almost overwhelmed by grief and by sorrow. It was an impassioned utterance. Isaiah can scarcely control himself when he says this. Why? Well, because as a Jew, as a member of the children of Israel, He could scarcely believe that this thing was possible. And yet God was revealing it to him. God gives him the message. It's the last kind of thing he'd have chosen to say. He didn't want to say it. He didn't like saying it any more than Jeremiah or any other of the prophets liked saying these things. But God gave him the revelation. And when he sees the truth of what is coming, Isaiah cries saying. He's overwhelmed though by this terrible and terrifying message which God has given him to deliver. And yet, you see, this is the very thing that the Jews have never seen. They're proud that Isaiah was one of their own prophets. They're proud of the role of the book of the prophet Isaiah. They were reading it, they were studying it, they were expounding it. And there it is, Isaiah actually crying out in anguish And still, they'd never seen it. They said, if you're a Jew, you're all right. You're not like those dogs. Every Jew is saved. Of course he is. He's a member of God's family. He's one of the children of God. We've got the covenants and the oracles. All is well with us. They'd never seen it. There it was, staring them in the face with this cry of anguish from the mouth and the lips of the prophet. They'd never seen it. They'd never heard it. Very well. That's how the Apostle introduces the statement. Esaias also crieth concerning Israel. What does he cry? Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Now, as we look at this uh, statement and the one that follows in verse 28, which is just an amplification of 27. We find ourselves in the same position as we did in the quotation from Hosea last Friday night. The apostle doesn't give an exact quotation. And the reason for that is precisely what I said a week ago. I'm not repeating it tonight. Far from disproving divine inspiration, as I try to show you, it proves it more than ever. The spirit who indicted the one indicts the other, and he varies the expression. It's neither the Septuagint, Neither is it the original Hebrew. But the meaning is perfectly plain and clear in both cases. What is it? Well, here is the statement that though the number of individuals in the nation of Israel may be as numerous as the grains of sand and the seashore, it is only a remnant out of them that's going to be saved. That's the statement. Now there is no doubt at all but that here the prophet Isaiah was referring to the promise that God made of old to Abraham. You remember the promises in connection with the birth of Isaac. And one of the promises was this in Genesis 22, 17. And in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. Now then, the Jews had taken hold of that. This was wonderful. The great miracle, the birth of their forefather Isaac. When Abram was 99 and Sarah over 90, the promise is made, yet Abram didn't stagger in unbelief, believed God. So he becomes the father of all the faithful. Yes, but the promise is that he'll have this great progeny, innumerable as the stars in the heaven or as the sand upon the seashore. And they gloried in this and interpreted it, of course, to mean that every one of them was always right with God and would be to all eternity. But you see, Isaiah takes up that promise and he says to this nation, though God promised that you were going to be as innumerable as the sand and the sea shore, only a remnant is going to be saved amongst you. And remnant, of course, just means that which is left. That's what a remnant is. When everything is gone, just something left. And he says that's all that's going to be left among you. You're not all going to be saved, only a remnant. It's another way of saying what he said in verse 6, that they are not all Israel that are of Israel. It's the quotation to prove this great argumentation of his, that it's only a small company in this great mass that rarely belongs to God. Very well, that's what he's saying. Now that verse, the 27th verse, deals only with this point that it is but a few of the Jews who are going to be saved. It's just a statement to that effect. But in verse 28, he takes the matter still further. 27 establishes that it is only a very small company, a small remnant or relic out of the mass that is going to be saved. 28 takes it further. And there he deals with the rejection and the punishment And the destruction of the mass. Now that aspect also of course is equally essential to the apostle's argument. It isn't enough merely that he should establish that it had been prophesied that only a small portion should be saved. The staggering thing is that God's own people in the mass and in the main are rejected and are going to be destroyed. Now verse 28 takes up the second part. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. Well, now, if we've been in difficulties about translation before, we're in still greater difficulties here. Fortunately, there's nothing vital. The meaning is perfectly clear and obvious. But once more, it's neither the Septuagint nor the Hebrew. It's a variation, as it were, upon the two. The only word that really I'm going to call your attention to is the word that is translated by the word "work," for he will finish the work, says this authorized translation. Now that really is the most unfortunate translation, because the word is not "work," but it is actually "word." For he will finish the word and cut it short in righteousness. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means a word. It means an utterance. It's used for a doctrine. It's used for reckoning. It's used for account. So that you can translate it like this. The Lord will execute his word upon the earth finishing it and cutting it short that's the real meaning or you may prefer the translation suggested by charles hodge for he will execute the judgment and accomplish it speedily for the judgment determined upon will the lord execute in the earth so you see the word means this the word is the word of god's announcement that's what he's going to execute that's what he's going to finish God, through the prophets, has made an an announcement, a proclamation. God has said that he is going to punish. Very well, says Isaiah, what he has said, he will do. The word that he has spoken, he will put into practice. What he has promised, he will perform. That's the real meaning of the statement. And you notice that it's put in this form, in this very dramatic form, that he will finish it, and he will cut it short, and a short work he will make of it. Now, all those ideas suggest suddenness, rapidity, and completion. Nothing will be left undone. God will suddenly do this work, and he will finish it. He will carry it out to the ultimate limit of what he has said beforehand. Now then, we've got to work out this and realize its significance. Here is a profound statement, therefore, to the effect that God's word is always true. Everything God has ever said, he will do. He will judge, he will punish, he will destroy. And the thoroughness of God's work is something which is awful in the true sense of the word to contemplate. The apostle says that God's word has got two sides to it. There is the word that pronounces wrath and punishment. There is the word that proclaims salvation to a remnant. And he's going to carry out the two sides of his great statement. Now we've got to remember this, that everything that God has ever said is an absolute statement. And will most certainly come to pass. Now as we look at this quotation from Isaiah, I must remind you again of something once more that we saw last week in the quotations from Hosea. The prophecies of the prophets generally carry two distinct meanings and applications. The first was an immediate application, but the more important one is the remote application. And as that was true about the prophecy of Hosea, it is still more true of this particular prophecy that we are dealing with here. The statement is, you see, that the bulk of the nation is going to be punished under the wrath of God. What's he referring to? Well, what was what was Isaiah thinking of? What had he got in his mind when he uttered and wrote those words? Well, there is no doubt that in the first instance, he was dealing with what was going to happen fairly quickly and fairly soon to the children of Israel. He may very well have had in mind uh, the departure of the ten tribes to form the northern kingdom, leaving only the two tribes in the original southern kingdom. That is part of it. He may have had in mind what happened in the Assyrian invasion. I've no doubt he did. There is no question at all but that he had very definitely in the forefront of his mind the attack of the Chaldeans, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the carrying away of the people to the captivity of Babylon. There is no question but that all that was in his mind. And that eventually from Babylon, it was only a remnant of the people who came back to their ancestral home in the land of Canaan. Now, that was undoubtedly the first meaning of the prophecy of Isaiah. It was the first thing in his mind. But as the apostle shows us here, it was not the only meaning. Never forget this about prophecy. The immediate meaning, the remote application. And here he says this is especially important from the standpoint of the remote, the ultimate application. And there can be no question at all with regard to this. But that this is a striking prophecy of what happened in the first century and especially in A.D. 70. When the city of Jerusalem and the temple were again destroyed and demolished by the Roman armies, and the Jews were cast out amongst the nations, where they remain until this very night. Not only that, it was only a very small number of them, a very small remnant, that believed the gospel, as the apostle has already reminded us in verse 24 and continued as citizens of the new form of the kingdom of God, which we call the Christian church. So that the apostle's argument is this. He says, when Isaiah wrote that, the ultimate meaning of that prophecy was what you and I are witnessing now. A.D. 70 hadn't yet come, remember. The apostle is particularly referring to the condition of the Christian church and could see also coming what happened in A.D. 70. Well, now then, here is another great lesson which we obviously learn as we go along. The very position that then obtained in the church had been prophesied eight long centuries before by the prophet Isaiah. You see, throughout the running centuries, God had given these warnings, and yet nothing seemed to happen Things did happen, but not to fulfill the prophecy. There seemed to be minor fulfillments. But still, the great thing itself had yet not happened. Now, I always feel that the best commentary on this particular quotation is uh, something which we read together at the beginning of the 23rd chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Let me read again to you verses 34, 35, and 36 of Matthew 23. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Listen, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, Unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Now that's the perfect commentary, if I may so put it, on what Isaiah prophesied when he said, He will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. You see, what it means is this. God makes this pronouncement of judgment. But then he doesn't seem to do anything. And the unbelievers and the unenlightened and the unintelligent say, Ah, well, it's just a threat and nothing's going to happen. Where is the promise of his coming, as Peter puts it in 2 Peter 3? But you see, this is the answer. God doesn't always uh, carry out what he says he's going to do immediately. And that is where people are so blind. Because he doesn't act at once, they say, oh, he's not going to act at all. You see, there it was in the days before the flood. God raised up Noah to preach, a preacher of righteousness, to warn the people about their sinfulness. And he says, the wrath of God is on this, and God's going to punish this world. He's going to destroy it. And they listened at first, but weeks and months and years passed, and nothing happened. And they began to laugh and joke, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the flood came and destroyed them all. You see, because it didn't happen at once, they began to say it wasn't going to happen at all. And likewise in Sodom and Gomorrah and so on. Oh, there's no greater fallacy than that. God makes his statement and here we are reminded that he will carry it out i don't know when he may delay for his own gracious purpose and we've already been given an insight into why he does it he does it partly in order that he may show something of the his long suffering on the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction we've gone into that but the principle is this that or soon or late He will do it. The day will come and he will do it and upon one generation will come all that God has ever threatened. And so the Jews whom he tolerated for so many long centuries and born with their evil manners as the scriptures themselves put it finally the day came when as our Lord had prophesied they were put aside. Our Lord you remember said that that God had now come to the point at which he was putting them aside and choosing a nation that should bring forth the fruits thereof. The terrible verdict upon the Jews, which our Lord delivered towards the end of his days. And again, as I say in that statement in Matthew 23, the day has come at last the moment has come God has been threatening it throughout the centuries now he's going to do it and when he does it it'll be a terrible act and so AD 70 was a terrible act according to Josephus and other writers it was one of the most terrible things that has ever happened in the whole history of the human race God finishing the work in righteousness cutting it short It all came suddenly upon that generation from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachias. All this wrath of God upon the nation suddenly is poured forth. The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceeding small. I can't recall whether I've ever told you the anecdote about the old preacher in Canada, I think it was, who had been preaching in an agricultural district for years and had taught his people not to work on Sundays. It had told them that if they want to be blessed of God, they mustn't do that. They mustn't break God's laws, whatever immediate loss they might have. The old men had preached that to them for years and years. Well, they came to one summer when the weather had been particularly bad. And suddenly there was a very fine Sunday and a very big farmer in the area decided that he and his men would go out to work and they carted in the crop. And uh, walking down the road one or two days later he suddenly met the old minister and he accosted the old men and he said, Hello, Pastor, he said, You know what I did on Sunday? Yes, said the old man. Well, he said, nothing's happened to us. The house hasn't burned down. I haven't lost all my family. God's done nothing to me. Everything's going on exactly as it was before. Ah, my friend, said the old farmer, God keeps long accounts. He doesn't always settle his accounts in the fall. What he meant was this, you see. God doesn't always strike immediately but the point is that he does strike what God has said God does and God has pronounced these awful judgments upon sin so don't don't be foolish says the prophet Isaiah and the apostle is here expanding it don't assume that because it hasn't come that it will never come don't say all oh, the years have passed he will, it will come he will finish the work and cut it short In righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And what the apostle is telling these contemporaries of his, these Jews who are rejecting Christ in unbelief, is this He says, You know, this is exactly what the prophet has prophesied. You are being rejected, and the Gentiles are coming in, and worse is coming to you. The hour of judgment has struck. God's stated word is now coming into operation. In other words, this quotation which we are looking at together here is one of the most relevant that the apostle could ever have chosen. It shows his knowledge of the scripture and his spiritual understanding. It proves his case right up to the very hilt. God had made promises to Israel, but he also uttered threats to Israel. God's promises to Israel were never unconditional. They thought they were, but they were not. The promises were always conditional. And God's promises never work themselves out automatically. You mustn't assume because you're a Christian that your children are Christians. You mustn't assume because your parents were that you are. You mustn't make any of these assumptions about nations or anything else. No, no, they never work automatically. God gave wonderful, exceeding great and precious promises to the children of Israel, but he gave them some of the most awful threats at the same time. Entering into the land, there was Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing, the Mount of Cursing. Both of them are there. And what the prophet is saying, and what Paul is expounding is this, that God always carries out both sides of the statement. Not only the promises, equally the threats. And it was the tragedy of the Jews that they had been blinded to the threats and the warnings. But now it was all coming visibly upon them. Don't be surprised, says the apostle therefore, at the state and the condition of the church, that she is mainly Gentile and that you as Jews are outside. It's the very thing that God gave the prophet to foresee 800 long years ago. And far from saying anything new, I am just holding before you the fulfillment of the promises of God. Very well. Then he goes on in verse 29. And verse 29 takes the argument one step further. Here is a quotation, as we've seen in the reading, from Isaiah 1 9. And as Isaiah said before, which means as he has said previously, as he said earlier in his book, you see, the, the apostle had been quoting, as I say, from uh, these verses in Isaiah 10. He says he's already told us earlier in chapter 1, this very thing that I now put before you. Well, once again, the apostle uh, There is what you will find in the Old Testament. You notice that in reading Isaiah 1.9, I read a very small remnant. But here I read, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed. Where did he get that from? Well, he got that from the Septuagint this time. This time he's using the Septuagint uh, translation. And, of course, it makes no difference. Remnant and seed mean almost exactly the same thing. Anybody who knows anything about farming will know that. A man grows potatoes, and he either sells or eats himself and his family the great bulk of the potatoes. But he keeps a few, what for? Well, as seed, to ensure that he'll have a crop next year. Keeps something back in order that he can put it into the ground and sow it, and thereby get a crop in the future. So, a remnant and a seed are virtually the same thing. The idea is just one. He's not thinking of an vegetable seed but of an animal seed that can guarantee the perpetuation of the lion you see it talked in verses seven and eight about the seed neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children but in isaac shall thy seed be called you remember how we worked that out that is, he says in verse 8, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise accounted for the seed. These are the ones through which the line is perpetuated. So he takes the word seed here to make it correspond to that instead of the word remnant. But it's exactly the same. Now then, why does he quote this? What is this statement in Isaiah nine? Well, it's this. The nation of Israel deserves total punishment and destruction, even like Sodom and Gomorrah. A remnant alone is unpunished and is saved. On what grounds is it saved? And there's only one answer. It is the mercy of the Lord of hosts. And it is the power of the Lord of hosts. So you see, this is another very vital and perhaps the most vital quotation of them all. The apostles' argument, as I told you, has been that salvation depends upon the sovereign election of God. You remember verse 11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Here it is. Salvation is entirely God's action. There would be none of us left. We'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Were it not that the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, he's done it. We haven't preserved ourselves. It's God who's preserved us. It's he who's left us a seed. Now, you notice this is a perfect summary of all the long argument we've been working through. Nobody at all deserves to be saved. Every one of us merits destruction and damnation. Every one of us should be overwhelmed with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the fact that anybody is saved at all is to be attributed to one thing only, and that is the mercy and the grace of God and his almighty power unto salvation. No man deserves to be saved. No man can save himself. Salvation is altogether and entirely and utterly of God. The whole of the Jews should have been destroyed. They richly deserved it. Their sinfulness. Did you notice how Isaiah in chapter 1 gives that catalog of their sins? Their rebellion, their folly, and all the rest of it. They deserve complete destruction. That's what they should have had. And the fact that there is a remnant left or a seed left is entirely due to this amazing purpose of God, who is forming a people for himself in and through his only begotten Son, who he sent into the world. To become incarnate and to take unto him human nature. That he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. And he's building up a new humanity in him. Some Jews, some Gentiles. Nobody's got a word of complaint. Because all deserve to be damned and destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. And God in his sovereign choice is perfectly free. And that is what he has chosen to do for the time being at any rate. The position is the exclusion of the Jews apart from a very small remnant and the bringing in of the Gentiles, the outsiders. And there's only one conclusion to come to. And that is that it is all the doing of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth, And there's nothing whatsoever to do with us. All that is excluded. The apostle's quotation proves his case to the very hilt. The fact that you're a Jew doesn't save you. The fact that you're a good man doesn't save you. Nothing saves you. It is God that saves you. The Lord of Sabaoth has left us a seed. And if he didn't, there would be nobody saved at all. He does it because of his love. He does it because of his power. The gospel is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's the power that can create anew. A man doesn't become a Christian by taking a decision. He's made a Christian by God who had marked him out before the foundation of the world and who sees to it that he's born and sees to it that he believes. It's the Lord of Sabaoth who leaves a remnant. And if he didn't, there would be no such thing as a Christian. The apostle has already said it in chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Well, it is the power of God unto salvation, and entirely his power. To everyone that believeth, yes. He goes on in the rest of the chapter to bring that element in. But if you go home tonight thinking that it's your believing, therefore, is the vital thing, well, I give up in despair. It's the Lord of Sabaoth who leaves the remnant. The work is entirely his. By grace are he saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Lest any man should burst. Give him the glory, my friend. The amazing thing, I say again, is that there is such a thing as a single Christian. It's the most astounding thing in the universe that there is a single Christian. And nothing explains the existence of even one Christian but the love and the grace, the mercy, and the power of the Lord God Almighty. The Lord God of Saviour. Let us bow before him. O Lord our God, we feel we can do and say nothing. We marvel, we wonder. We are filled with amazement and astonishment. Great is the mystery of godliness. And we rejoice in it. And now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the love of God. And the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Abide and continue with us. Now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short and uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage, and evermore.
0: Amen. I do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.